0: This is a reading of a collection of lectures by Rudolf Steiner entitled What is Necessary in These Urgent Times. It is a collection of 18 lectures, and this is the last lecture, Lecture 18, entitled The Development of Imperialism, Part 3, given in Dornach on February 22, 1920. If you think back over what we considered yesterday and the day before, you will see that the nature of imperialism is such that in a society of people, Represented by the word imperialism, something that was at one time a sort of duty, a clear if not always justified task, is carried on as time passes, almost automatically. When it comes to historical events in human evolution, it is the case that due to a kind of inertia we hold on to certain things that were at one time justifiable or at least explicable, things that once had reasons for existing, even though the impulses behind them have now been lost. When, at some point in history, a society of people found it necessary to defend itself, this was certainly justifiable. In the interest of defense, certain jobs were created, police officers and military positions. But after the danger against which the people had to defend themselves has passed, those positions that were created continue to exist. The society must continue to have people filling them. The people who fill those positions want to continue doing their jobs. And consequently something is created which, when you consider true relationships in the world, has no explicable reason for continuing to exist. It might even be the case that something which had once been created for defense actually becomes something aggressive. And indeed this is actually true in the case of all the imperialists, with the exception of the original imperialism of the first phase of humanity, which I spoke about two days ago. In that case, the justification for spreading the empire of the ruler as far and wide as possible can be derived from the fact that in the consciousness of the people at that time a ruler was actually a god. In all of the ensuing forms of imperialism, it is fundamentally the case that the inner impulse to expand the influence of a particular empire cannot exist. Let us consider once more, from a particular perspective, what actually occurred in the historical development of humanity. We find that in the most ancient times, which we cannot fully trace in our history, but in which certain facts that can be historically traced continue to shine forth, that in these times the will of those who were looked to as godly figures was the indisputable element of power. In this stage of imperialism there was fundamentally nothing to discuss in public life. But the reason that no discussion was possible is based on the fact that the ruler was a god strolling about the earth in human form. This provided, if I can be permitted to say so, a sure and firm grounding for the ordering of public and social affairs. Now, gradually all of those things, founded upon the basis of a firm, genuine, godly human will, faded into the second phase. In the second phase, everything that can be observed in physical life, whether it be people, insignias, the actions of rulers or upper-class individuals, all of that was a symbol, a sign. Whereas in the first phase of imperialism, the spirit was thought of as existing completely within the physical world. In the second phase, everything that exists in the physical world was thought to be a reflection, an image, a symbol of things that do not exist in the physical world but can only be depicted through the people, actions and other things that are part of the physical world. This time in which this second phase played itself out is the first period in which discussion actually became possible in the world of human thought, at least as far as public affairs are concerned. In the first phase of imperialism we cannot, or excuse me, we actually cannot talk at all about what we now refer to as rights. We cannot talk about any sort of state institutions or structures. We can only talk about the appearance of godly figures in the form of physical human beings. We can only talk about the fact that in social affairs the concrete and true will of physical human beings was at work. At that time the question of whether that will was justified or not made no sense. It simply was. It was to be followed. To discuss whether the God in human form should or should not do what was done was nonsensical. In those very ancient times in which the conditions existed that I have just described to you as being characteristic of them, this also did not occur. But when people began to see in the physical world around them only the image of the spiritual world, when people began to talk about what St. Augustine called the City of God, meaning a city that exists here on earth but is a reflection of heavenly structures and heavenly personalities, then it was possible for one person to believe that what these individuals who were reflecting the Divine did was correct. That it was indeed an accurate reflection, whereas another person might take issue with this and could say, That is not an accurate reflection of the divine. In that we find the first possibility of a discussion. Contemporary people believe that criticism and discussion have always been present throughout the course of human evolution because they are so used to criticizing and discussing everything. This is not the case. Discussion and criticism first appeared in the second phase of imperialism that I described to you. During that phase, it also became possible for the first time for an individual to make assessments and judgments inwardly, meaning it became possible to attach a predicate to a subject. In the most ancient forms of human expression, personal assessment simply did not exist when it came to public affairs. In the second phase of imperialism, preparations could, for the first time, begin for things such as what we now refer to as Parliament. For the idea of a Parliament only makes sense when one is able to have discussions about public affairs. So, even the most primitive form of public discussion appears first as a characteristic of the second phase of imperialism. Insofar as the characteristically Western form of imperialism has spread more or less across the entire world, we are living nowadays in the third phase, in that third phase which I have described to you, insofar as the soul life enters into our considerations as the age of the empty phrase. This phrase, imperialism, as I described it yesterday, is one in which the inner substance has vanished from discussion, and in which anyone can be right, or at least you can believe that you are right, and in which no one can prove you wrong either, because within the world of empty phrases basically any claim can be made. But early phases always continue to exist in the ones that follow upon them. This is fundamentally why the inner impulses of the imperialists continue to emerge and develop in the present. People only look at things on a very superficial level. When the early German emperor wrote his ethos in a book, The king's will is the supreme law, close quote, as he did, what does that mean? It means that in the age of the empty phrase, the emperor spoke words that would have had meaning only during the first phase of imperialism. During that first phase it was in fact the case that the will of the ruler was the most supreme law. The idea of rights, which is always implicit in any discussion and has a string of lawyers and advocates in tow, is fundamentally a characteristic of the second phase of imperialism, and it can be understood within the context of its reality in that second phase. Anyone who has followed the many discussions about the origin and nature of rights can gather from these discussions that there is something enigmatic and opalescent in the nature of the concept itself. Because when considering rights, you are dealing with something that comes from the second age of imperialism, in which spiritual reality illuminated, shimmered behind, shone through the material world such that when we have before us only the outer shell of the symbol, which can also be present in words and the practice of law, then it is possible to argue about the nature of rights, to take sides in a discussion in public life about rights and law. In this age of the empty phrase, we lose all understanding of how necessary it is in our social relations if we are to find an anchor the concept of rights, for this perspective to take hold, the spiritual realm is shining here into the physical realm. And when this understanding is lost, then people start to define rights in the way that I presented to you yesterday in the example of Woodrow Wilson. Today I want to read to you word for word a definition that Woodrow Wilson offered of rights. And you will see that this definition proves itself to be nothing more than a bunch of empty words. I cited this definition yesterday, and today I want to cite it again more exactly. He writes, quote, Law is the will of the state concerning its own organization and conduct and the civic conduct of those under its authority. Close quote. So the state has a will. We should imagine a man standing totally within abstract idealism, to say nothing of materialism, for the two are much the same, abstract idealism and materialism, and from that place saying quote, law is the will of the state, close quote. The state supposedly has a will. You would have to be forsaken by all spirits of a more concrete perspective in order to even attempt to say or write something like this statement but it is nonetheless found in that work that I told you about yesterday in that Codex of Phraseology titled The State, Elements of Historical and Practical Politics by Woodrow Wilson. In that same book, there are other interesting things as well. As an aside, I would like to draw your attention to one passage in which Woodrow Wilson writes about the German Empire, after saying that the efforts to found this German Empire had been going on for some time before aspiring to its present form in 1870-71. He concludes this section with the following sentences. The final impulse was given to the new processes of union by the Franco-Prussian War of 1870-71. Prussia's successes in that contest, won, as it seemed, in the interest of German patriotism, broke the coldness of the Middle States toward their great northern neighbor, they joined the rest of Germany, and the German Empire was formed. Palace of Versailles, January 18, 1871. Close this was written by the same man who, some time later, united in Versailles with those who had, in their impertinence, given the inducement for the formation of the German Empire back then. Many things in modern day public opinion originate precisely in something like this that humanity is so appallingly superficial and does not take care with anything. If you resolve to make judgments on the basis of objective considerations, then things always come out differently than what swims about in the contemporary public sphere and is repeated over and over again by thousands upon thousands of people. And so in the second stadium we are dealing with something that leads to the possibility of discussion, something that actually makes possible for the first time the concept of public rights. In the third stadium we are dealing, as we have seen, with the economic life as an actual reality. And yesterday we showed how in the course of historical evolution this age of the phrase is absolutely necessary, so that the phrase, no longer full of any content, can then open the eyes of human beings to the necessity of bringing spirituality, new spirituality, into the wider world. For the moment, people have only a meager imagination of this new spirituality, and for that reason it is understandable that this new spirituality faces the grossest of misunderstandings. For this new spirituality must take hold in the deepest underground places of human life, and For as much as the secret societies of the world, as regards their substance, their content, are merely traditionally preserving the old ways in their substance, in their content, the outward practice of being brothers, without bringing considerations of class in the outer world into the lodge and without paying attention to individual subjective beliefs, is something that in a certain sense, though also something else which I will describe to you momentarily, is preparing the future in the proper manner. Let us examine something altogether banal, entirely ordinary, that we might say nowadays, and I ask you to pay particular attention to this, quote, the tree is green, This is a sentence that belongs entirely to the second stadium of human evolution. The tree is green, Perhaps you will understand this best if I ask you to imagine that you are to paint that which is expressed by the assessment the tree is green. You cannot paint this. It is impossible to paint the tree is green. You might have a big white or some other color piece of paper and then put green color onto it, but you will be painting nothing of a tree. And if you you were first to paint something of a tree without putting any green there, then you would end up with something that only addresses the object. <clears throat> if you wanted to paint the tree as green, you would actually have to paint a dead thing. The manner in which we join subject to predicate in our language is fundamentally useful only for our worldview of dead things, of the unliving world, because we do not still possess an imagination of how everything in the world is living and of how we are to express ourselves over and against a world in which all is living and moving. We construct sentences such as the tree is green, which actually says that a relationship exists between something and the color green, whereas in actuality the color green is the creative element, the thing with living and effective power in this circumstance. The transformation of human thinking and feeling must take place all the way into the depths of the soul life, which will a long time from now be called forth, and this transformation will then carry into outward social relationships, into the interactions between people. In regard to all of this, we are now standing just at the very beginning stage, but we must be able to see which of the paths forward leads us toward the light. I said before, There is something significant about people coming together in such a way that the subjective beliefs of each individual play no role. And from this perspective, follow for a moment, but do it truly in your own thoughts, the way in which things are laid out in Anthroposophy. Never are things described in such a way as to offer definitions or general judgments. We try, though we must deal with the fact that people do not always take it up in this manner, but nevertheless... The fundamental attempt is made to offer pictures, to describe things from the greatest variety of angles, and as such, it is actually entirely senseless when people try to nail people try to nail down something truly spoken as a spiritual scientific truth to a judgment of either yes or no. There are certainly people at present who are always wanting to do this, but it is impossible because we are moving from out of the second stadium they're using the uh the, this uh, aside from the reader somehow this word stadium has has jumped into the text and i'm not quite sure but the second we were using because we're moving from out of the second phase of imperialism into the third phase the word stadium is there now so i'm going to use it but i believe it's syn- synonymous with that because we are moving from out of the second stadium of imperialism into the third stadium it happens over and over that somebody poses the question What would be good for me to do, since I am struggling with this or that difficulty in my life? Advice is given. Aha, says the asker, so when I find myself in this position in life I should do this or that. We generalize, but each situation has only a very limited meaning, for judgments that fall out of the spiritual world always have only an individual meaning, are applicable only to the particular matter at hand. This practice of generalizing, to which we are accustomed because of the experience of the second stadium of human evolution, may not be carried forward into the future. People nowadays are just so very used to taking things from the past and continuing them into the future. We can overcome the things that continue to live on perniciously in our souls by stepping back and seeing these matters with full clarity. Yesterday I indicated to you that in many ways the Catholic Church harkens back to the first stadium of imperialism. It contains in large part something like a trace or shadow of the first stadium of human evolution, a trace or shadow that was during certain periods condensed into a form of soul imperialism, for example, during the 11th century, during which time the monks from Cluny actually had much more control in Europe than people realize. From that group came the pope gregory the 7th the powerful imperialistic pope the fact that actually according to the roman catholic dogma the priests consider themselves to be more than the christ because they are able to demand that the christ be present at the altar this fact clearly demonstrates that the institution of the catholic church is in fact the shadow of what once existed during the first stadium of human evolution in the most ancient form of imperialism. Now you know that there is a great enmity between the Catholic Church and all of the societies that served as the instruments of the Freemasons, or at least a certain sect of the Freemasons, in the western areas of the world. Nowadays this enmity is spreading far and wide, and in this lecture today I can do no more to demonstrate in any specific details how this enmity has recently expanded, but one thing can be said, that in these secret societies one fact lives very strongly, namely the insight that the Catholic Church is merely the shadow of the now defunct imperialism of the first stadium. This is actually one of the most basic teachings of these secret societies, that the Catholic Church is the shadow, the last remnant of the first stadium of imperialism. The Holy Roman Empire of the German nation continued to use this frame. Charlemagne and the Otto's were crowned by the Pope, used the imperialism of the soul as a means of anointing themselves for the imperialism of the external world. They took what was already there, what had remained from ancient times, and used that mold to cast something new. In this way the imperialism of the second stadium was cast in the frame of the first stadium of imperialism. Now we have arrived at the third stadium, which has shown itself particularly in the western regions of the world. We have arrived at economic imperialism. This economic imperialism has as its foundation and backdrop, as I have already said, a spiritual world of secret societies that sate themselves with phrase-like symbols. But if we can see clearly that the outward constitution, the social make-up of the Church, is only a shadow of something that was formerly present and now holds no meaning, then we still are not seeing through the second stadium of imperialism, and in this we find the great state of illusion in which the present-day statesmen in particular find themselves. It is always so telling that Woodrow Wilson is able to speak of the will of the state. He would no longer be able to speak of the will of the church, but he speaks of the will of the state, as if it were something altogether self-evident. Now the state is a carrier of the rights life, taken as a totality, as a whole, only had the meaning ascribed to it at present during the second stadium of human evolution. Whereas in the most ancient times the church was everything, or rather that thing from which the church resulted was everything, in the second stadium, that thing from which the state has now resulted was everything. When it comes to the church, this has been noticed, particularly within the secret societies. When it comes to the state, it has not yet been noticed. For the time being we continue to pour everything into the mold of the State, just as in the Middle Ages all new things were poured into the mold of the Church. Into the State we pour everything that has been united under the banner of a certain concept of freedom. The whole economic imperialism of Great Britain has been cast in the frame of the State. And all those who have been well educated in Great Britain see something self-evident in the state, something to which they can readily ascribe a will. This must also be seen clearly, however, so that this understanding of the state can go the same way as the understanding of the Church went. We must recognize, when, for the collective social organism, we hold to a concept of the state as merely an institution of the right's life, and then jam everything else into this rights institution, we are perpetuating a shadow, just as the Church perpetuated a shadow, as is now known to the secret societies. But there is still little consciousness of this. Think just a moment about the way in which everything that gets people worked up in outward affairs is nowadays jammed into the concept of the state. There are people who are nationalists, chauvinists, and so on. Everything that people refer to as a nation, national, chauvinist, all of this is incorporated into the frame of the state. We press nationalism into that frame and build the concept of a nationalist state. Or, let us say that someone has certain perspectives on, say, socialism, even totally radical socialism... Again we take up the frame of the state. Instead of pressing nationalism into it, now we are forcing socialism into the frame. But people have no understanding of the fact that this frame is now only a shadowy construction, just as the makeup of the church has become a shadowy concept. In certain Protestant churches one is given to understand that the church is just an outward institution that the being of religion must take root in the heart of each person. This stadium of human evolution has not yet arrived as regards our understanding of the state. Otherwise people would not have tried to press all possible nationalities into the drawing up of European borders, of national borders, after the latest military encounters. But no one is reckoning with these matters. They are not reckoning with the fact that what happens in the historical evolution of humanity is life and not mechanics. And coming into being and dying out both belong to life. But something different belongs to an imperialistic understanding. What belongs to that understanding is that one does not think at all about the future. It belongs to the whole understanding of the outward affairs of humanity at present that people do not have any living thoughts about the future, only dead thoughts. They think, today we are building something good, excuse me, today we are building something, it is good, and it will stay here forever. The feminist movement, socialism, nationalism, they all think in this manner. We are founding something now, it begins with us. People have been waiting for us, waiting for the moment when we would be this clever. But now we have come up with the cleverest thing that ever will be. It will last for all eternity. This would be more or less the same thought that I would have to have if I had raised a child until he was eighteen years old, and then said to myself, now I have raised him properly and he will stay just like he is now. He will, however, grow older, and he will also die. And it is the same way with everything that comes into being in human evolution. I have come now to what I was hinting at earlier, to what must be brought to the principle of having no concern for subjective beliefs or to human brotherhood. What must be brought to this is the living perspective that in this earthly life we must also reckon with death. What must be brought to it is the conscious awareness. We are creating institutions in the present that must necessarily also die out, for they bear within them the principle of death, institutions that have no desire to exist eternally, that do not think for a moment about being something ever-present. But how can such a thing be realized? Well, under the influence of the thinking that comes out of the second stadium, it never will be realized. But if that feeling of shame about which I spoke yesterday enters, if we come to recognize We are living in the kingdom of the phrase, in which only economic life, only economic imperialism holds any sway. Then there will be a call for the spirit that moves, though unseen, all throughout reality. There will be a call for recognition of the spirit that speaks of the spiritual world as an invisible kingdom, as a kingdom that is not of this world, and in which consequently the Christ impulse will truly be able to take hold. There will be a call for the recognition of just such a kingdom. This can only be so when the social organism is threefolded the economic life managing itself, the rights life serving no longer as the absolute, all encompassing understanding of the state, and the state functioning only as the frame for that which truly lies within the rights life, and the spiritual life existing in true freedom meaning in such a way that it can truly take form in reality as spiritual life. Spirit can move among people only when it is dependent upon nothing but itself, and when all institutions that serve the Spirit are dependent upon nothing other than themselves. What do we have then when we have this threefolded organism? organism, this social organism? We then have an economic life, its nature is exactly the same as the nature of the original form of imperialism. Everything that moves within it is also present entirely within life on the physical earth. In this economic branch, the managing forces must truly come out of the economic life itself. I do not believe that anyone would be of the opinion, were this economic organism to be organized in the manner described in my kernpunkte that anything supersensory is connected with economic life. When we eat, when we prepare our food, when we make our clothes, this is all reality. The aesthetics of them might be symbolic, but the clothing itself is just reality. When we then examine the second branch of the so- social organism, we find that we do not have, for the future, the same kind of symbolism that existed in the second stadium of human evolution, wherein the state, the embodied right's life, was a totality. But in everything that emerges from one human being, we have a picture of that which lives in all other human beings. We have constructed the symbols anew from out of the present moment. What one human being does will always be a guide for the entire form of the social rights constitution that is constructed. And the third will not be a symbol and not a phrase. Rather, it will become spiritual reality. The spirit will have the possibility of truly living among human beings. And so the inner social order can only be built if we truly move toward inner truthfulness. During the era of the empty phrase, however, this is particularly difficult, for in the age of the empty phrase people are used to a certain refined cleverness, but this refined cleverness is in actuality fundamentally nothing more than a game with the word representations of old concepts. Think for a moment of that characteristic example that suddenly it emerges from out of the imperialism of the phrase that it would be good for the king or queen of England to also hold the title Emperor of India. Absolutely nothing has actually changed. Of course, many excellent reasons can be found for awarding this title Empress of India or Emperor of India. But think about what would have happened if this were not done. Nothing would have gone differently the emperor of Austria, who is now among those who has been chased out of his throne, bore until the time of his ousting, among his other titles, one particularly peculiar title. It was, if I can remember them all, Franz, Joseph I, emperor of Austria, apostolic king of Hungary, king of Bohemia, Dalmatia, Croatia, Slovenia, Galicia, Lodomeria, Illyria, and so on, Among these other titles, there was the title King of Jerusalem. The Austrian emperor, until he was no longer emperor, had the title King of Jerusalem. This dated back to the Crusades. There is no better way to prove the role that meaninglessness plays at present. And meaninglessness actually plays a much larger role than you might believe. What is important is that we ascend to this recognition of what is is like at present, and this is made more difficult by the fact that those who are living within the phrases are simply rolling around the word representations of old concepts in their brains and believe they are thinking. But we can return truly to thinking only when we infuse our inner soul lives with substance, and this can only come out of a recognition of the spiritual world, of spiritual life, Only by infusing ourselves with spiritual life can we again become human beings full of content after having become an intestine of the empty phrase, a phrase-bowel that is altogether empty, satisfied only by word-husks. Out of the feeling of shame I already hinted at yesterday will emerge a call for the Spirit. And the possibility for this Spirit to spread throughout the world will come about only if the spiritual life develops independently. Otherwise we will always have to work within little holes, as we have been forced to do with the Waldorf School, because the school regulations in Württemberg had just such a hole that made it possible to establish a Waldorf School according to purely spiritual laws, spiritual principles, something which would have been possible in almost no other place in the world nowadays. But we can truly build those things connected with spiritual life from the spiritual world only when the other two branches of the social organism do not exert their influence in it, when these things are taken, are truly taken purely out of the spiritual world. At the moment the tendency of this age is to do just the opposite, but this tendency of the current age will never reckon with the fact that a new spiritual life will appear more and more on the earth with each new generation. It makes no difference whether an absolutist state or a Soviet republic is established now. If people move forward with the establishment of such things without a conscious awareness that everything created is subject to life and must therefore change with time and ultimately die out, must go through new forms and metamorphoses, then the only thing that they are truly preparing is that each new generation will become revolutionaries, For they will only incorporate into the social life of the present what is considered good for the immediate present. What must come forward, our foundational laws, which in the western regions of the world are still firmly secluded within the empty phrase, is the ability to see the social organism as something living. It can only be seen as something living when its threefold nature is understood. For this reason a great, terrible and intense responsibility lies with those who through economic privilege are expanding an imperialism over almost the entire world. The responsibility to become aware that the practice of a true spiritual life must be poured into this imperialism. It must be experienced as outright mockery and scorn that in the British Isles an economic empire has been founded that rules the entire world and that then, when particularly deep mystical spirituality is desired, they turn to what has been economically conquered, economically exploited, and take their spirituality from that. We have the obligation to allow spiritual substance to flow freely from itself into the outward form of the social organism. This is the conscious awareness that I believe our British friends must take away from here, the conscious awareness that in this historical moment all of those who belong to world organisms in which the English language is spoken have an obligation to bring true spirituality into the outward economic empire. For when it comes to this matter, it is a situation of either-or. Either our strivings remain purely within the scope of the economic empire, in which case the downfall of earthly civilization is the only possible result, or spirit will be poured into this economic empire. In which case the intended results of earth evolution will actually be achieved. I would like to say here every morning you should hold this truth before yourself and regard it solemnly, and each individual action you take should be taken with this impulse in mind. The world clock is tolling solemnly now. We have by and large reached the zenith of the empty phrase. When all content has been squeezed out of the phrase, a content that once entered it in a different form and no longer has any meaning. We must take up what can once again bring a truly substantial content to our social life and our soul life. We must be clear that the outcome of this either-or scenario is up to each individual to decide and that each and every person must take part in this decision with his or her inner powers of soul. Otherwise we are not actually living out True human affairs. But the longing for illusions is incredibly great, particularly now in this age of the empty phrase. People would so prefer to push away the seriousness of life. People do not want to gaze upon the truth that moves through our evolution. Would people have allowed themselves to be deceived by Wilson- Wilsonism if they truly possessed the inner desire to be clarified by the truth? This desire must come. The longing for truth must be awoken in humanity. Above all, the longing for the freedom of spiritual life must be awakened in humanity along with the knowledge that one has not a right to call oneself a Christian if one does not understand what is meant by the saying My kingdom is not of this world. This means that the kingdom of Christ must become an invisible kingdom, a truly invisible kingdom, a kingdom that we speak about in the way we speak speak about things we cannot see. Only once spiritual science has begun to move amongst us will we be able to speak of such a kingdom. An outward-oriented church or state cannot bring this kingdom into reality, nor can an economic empire. Only the will of individual human beings living within a liberated spiritual life can realize this kingdom. People can scarcely believe that in those areas in which they live, the areas that are populated, much can be done for the liberation of the spiritual life. Therefore action must be taken precisely in those areas that are not already a part of the political realm the economic realm or obviously the soon-to-be spiritual realm. Above all, we must be infused with the knowledge that we have not yet arrived at the time when we can say things have been going downhill, now everything is looking up again. No, if people do not take actions from out of the spiritual world, then things will not turn upward, but rather will continue to go downhill. Humanity does not currently live on something that it produces, For in order to produce something, we must again act under the impulses of the spiritual. Humanity is living nowadays off of reserves, of old reserves that will someday be used up. And it is childish and naive to believe that someday we will hit bottom and then suddenly everything will start to get better even if we just sit on our hands. This is not at all the case and the hope would be that saying something like what I have just spoken would light a fire in each person's soul that would direct them toward the anthroposophical movement. We would also hope that the spirit that so greatly haunted those who have perhaps found their way to the anthroposophical movement will be conquered by the spirit that is spoken of here. Certainly it is often true, that the individuals who come toward such a movement want something for themselves, for their own souls. They can have this as well, but only when they are also able to place their souls in service to the whole. They should move further down their own paths, to be sure, but do so in such a way that the whole of humanity might also move further down its path. This cannot be said often enough. This should also be added to the other thought that I earlier said you should hold up before yourself and consider every morning. If the deepest inner impulse of this movement had been taken completely seriously, we would have been farther along in our path today. But much of what is done in our circles currently is not an advancement toward the future but a hindrance. We must take counsel with ourselves about this fact This is very important, and above all, we should not believe that the most potent oppositional forces are not looming over us from all sides, ready to fight against any striving toward the salvation of humanity. Several times I have pointed out to you here the things that are being done to combat this movement in the world, the animosity that has been directed toward this movement. I feel it is my responsibility to familiarize you with these things, so that you might see that you should never say to yourself, now we have successfully disproved this or that. We have disproved nothing, because when it comes to this kind of opposition, it is not a matter of somehow representing the truth. They make as little contact with the actual affair as possible but then deliver defamations from as many different angles as they can. I would like to read to you a passage from a letter that arrived recently in Stuttgart from Christiania. I would just like to read one section. Several of our anthroposophical friends are working together at a so-called adult education center in Christiania with one Schirmer. This Herr Schirmer is in one sense a very capable teacher, but is also a fanatical racist and a sworn anti-Semite. At a recent gathering at which three of us gave lectures on the threefold social order, he sought to argue against us, or rather against the Kernpunkte from Dr. Steiner, though without any particular success. The chap holds some sway among circles of teachers, and he is working on his own in a manner not dissimilar to the threefold social order insofar as he represents freedom and lively objectiveness to the children he teaches. But still he is working against the threefold social order and Dr. Steiner for the simple reason that he harbors a suspicion that Dr. Steiner is a Jew. This is probably not actually so terrible. No doubt we must expect and overcome far more and greater oppositions than this. But now he has received confirmation of his suspicion. He turned to an, in quotes, authority, namely to the editor of the political-anthropological monthly Berlin Steglitz, this monthly which is outright anti-Semitic, wrote to him that Dr. Steiner is a Jew through and through, he has connections with the Zionists, actually is tied to them directly, and the ed- editor added that they, the anti-Semites, have had their eye on you for quite some time. Herr Schirmer went on to explain that an outright persecution of the Jews is now beginning in Germany, and that all Jews currently on the blacklists of the anti-Semites should simply be gunned down, or as they say, rendered harmless. And so on. You see, the crux of the matter here has nothing to do with something that is in any way anti-Semitic. That is simply the surface layer. In connection with situations like these, People use insults with which they are able to communicate as much as possible to those who somehow hear those insults. But such things also point to something that most people nowadays do not want to see, something about which they would rather continue to deceive themselves. It is much more serious today than you would like to think, and what is important is that we do not misjudge the gravity of this time but rather become clear about the fact that when it comes to such things, things that work against everything that we mean when we speak of the forward progress of humanity, we are seeing only the beginning, and that we may never, without doing harm to our obligations, turn our gaze away from everything now appearing in the form of a radical evil within humanity, everything now being realized as radical evil within humanity. The worst thing that can happen now is to believe, having listened to insults and empty phrases, that everything that verbalization gives to old concepts and understanding, that all of that still is somehow rooted in human reality, and that we do not draw forth a new reality from the founts of the spiritual world itself. This, my dear friends, was something of what I wanted still to say to you today what I wanted to say first and foremost for all of you, but particularly for those whose visit we have so heartily enjoyed, particularly for our English friends, that after their return they might direct their behavior and actions there, where it will be important for them to do so, out of a certain knowledge and awareness. You will have noticed that here I have not spoken well or ill of anyone, I have not spoken to flatter anyone, here I have spoken simply to communicate the truth. I have also come to know theosophists. When they have spoken to people from a foreign country, they began their talk about what an honor it is to be able to spread the teachings of spiritual life within the borders of that great nation that had gained so much glory for itself. I could not speak to you here in such a manner, but I think that you all came to hear the truth, and I believe that in this manner I have served you as best I can, in that I attempted to speak the unadorned truth. You will have seen from these lectures that to speak the truth nowadays is not a comfortable thing, for the truth calls up more opposition now than ever before. Do not shy away from this opposition, for in this time the two are one and the same, having enemies and speaking the truth. These things must be seen for what they are, and we will understand them best when we also have as a foundation for this oppositional understanding the desire always to hear the truth. This is what I wanted to say today, both to the group at large and in particular to our English friends, in my last lecture to you before my trip to Germany. The end of Lecture 18, the end of the book, What is Necessary in These Urgent Times, by Rudolf Steiner.